Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the All the World podcast. My name is Cedric. I am an actor, a filmmaker, a screenwriter, and the host of this podcast. And my guest today is Sean Beeson. Sean, say hi. Hello. Sean is a composer uh, who has worked on probably over a thousand projects by now. He does all kinds of stuff, and I'm excited to talk about the full range of what he's worked on, from video games to films to documentaries to commercials to everything. If there's something that requires music, Sean has been involved in it. Uh, So we're going to talk about that for sure, because that's very, very exciting. I don't know, Sean, I don't think I've ever mentioned this to you. You're from the Shelby area, which is where my wife was born and spent the early years of her life. Wow. Yeah, it's a small world. It is. Her mom was the pastor at the Lutheran Church in Shelby. Okay. Yeah, I know where that's at. So that's neat. Uh, Also, because you're listening to this and you can't see him, Sean has two things that uh, instantly made me excited when he came on the chat. One is an absolutely rocking mustache. And I'm not a mustache guy, uh, but Sean, you, you wear it better than anyone I've ever seen. Yeah, thank you. It's not uh, it's not mask friendly, but uh, that's ah, that's yeah. something you have to just kind of live with during the pandemic. And but yeah, when I don't have the mask on, I usually have wax on it and the full handlebar. <laughs> you got a little. It looks good. Up. Looks yeah. amazing. Looks amazing. And you also are sitting in front of a giant home arcade. Yes. Yeah, I'm a. I'm from that era when arcades existed and. Uh, I'd love to have that kind of nostalgia, and it's also nice because my kids get to to enjoy them, and I have a Ninja Turtles cabinet behind me, so I can have four (laughs) of my kids play at one time instead of them all fighting over, you know, one or two joysticks. Right. So I'm trying to to bring that arcade passion to my kids. You have six kids, right? I do. I do. Including one newborn. Congrats. Thank you. Yeah, they're ranging from the ages of 11 to uh, two months. So how much coffee do you think you drink on a weekly basis? <laughs> weekly? Uh, I, I probably drink six to eight cups of coffee a day. A day? Yeah. I like coffee and I like hot things. So it's kind of like this nice combination of drinking I something that's warm and the caffeine is an added benefit. Yeah. I was Before the pandemic, I was drinking three or four cups a day. And I do not have six kids, uh, so that was not necessary. Uh, so I, I have no kids. Yeah. <laughs> I was just tired. Uh, and so I decided to quit cold turkey. And I remember like a two-week span of not knowing if I had COVID or not because the withdrawal was so bad. Uh, I couldn't sleep through the night, anything like that. So I'm back up. I drink maybe two or three cups a week now. But uh, yeah. it, it was rough. Uh, yeah, uh, coffee for me is part of the uh, artistic process. It really kind of helps you know, me kind of deal with certain creative roadblocks when you're, you're caffeinated and you just have this energy. Sometimes you can't dwell on certain things. Yeah, exactly. You just go, you just look in a direction and just rocket towards that conclusion (laughs) because you're full of uh, caffeine. Fair enough. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) So I just feel like even just from the few minutes we talked before this started, because uh, we've, we've known each other over social media, but we haven't really had a conversation before. I feel like you have, and maybe it's the mustache, uh, have such an interesting story. So, like, how did you get into, what makes you want to write music? What made you, because you started wanting to do film and video games. Mm-hmm. 
We both went to Capital University, hashtag CapFam. Mm-hmm. Uh, so shout out to Cap. Uh, what led you to Cap? What led you to wanting to do music? Yeah, yeah. So my story goes back uh, to when I, before I was a teenager. And I always had kind of uh, really been into listening to music growing up uh, with, with cassette tapes. Yeah, that kind of shows how old I am. Uh, on cassette tapes and um, portable cassette players and stuff. And I, one Christmas, I got this little Casio synthesizer. And what was kind of neat about it is that you could synthesize your own sounds, right? So it wasn't just like, oh, a piano and a clarinet and drums. You could actually kind of manipulate the sounds to get different, uh, synthesize something out of it. And so I was really into kind of making my own sounds. And I was I was younger than 10 at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, but I love to just make different sounds and make a lot of noise uh, with this instrument. But I, I wasn't taking any formal music lessons or training or anything at that point. Um, and then my, my great-grandmother, she was a lifelong musician, a pianist, and an organist. And uh, she passed away. And, she, you know, she was very old and passed away from uh, just natural causes. And she had a piano in her house. And it's this just massive upright piano that's like a piece of furniture. Uh, seems like it probably weighed a ton. But they said, well, who wants this piano? Who's going to take this piano? And my parents said, do you think you'd like to take piano lessons? And I was about 11 at that point, And I said, sure, I guess. You know, and so they brought a piano over and that was really the first musical instrument that I had been exposed to uh, outside of kind of the keyboard and some some drums. Sure. Uh, And so I started taking lessons and I think really within just a matter of months, I was already composing music on the piano, uh, like 11 and 12 years old. Um, And so this was also in the mid 90s. Right. So this was like Windows 3.1, Windows 95. Right. Multimedia was starting to become a thing. Right. So you would start to play games on the computer or you'd start to watch videos and it would be like full motion video, uh, much higher quality music. You know, there would be a sound blaster card in a PC. So you'd get much higher quality soundtracks to games. Um, And I started to notice that. And I said, I love games, I love technology, I love music, I want to do this. And so I took piano lessons, Uh, I started to get into music technology, I got some portable recorders that were like the first, some of the first digital recorders that you could get, so that I could start to write my own music. Um, And for, it was either Christmas or my birthday one year, I told my parents, I want to go to a recording studio. And I want to record an album. Like, that's what I want for for Christmas. Um, And so they did that. So I went to a recording studio in Hayesville. So, you know, somewhere west of, uh, uh, east of Mansfield, Ohio. And really, you know, I wanted to record music. But what I really liked was just going in there and seeing all the guys' stuff, seeing all the gear. I'd be like, what's that? Right. Oh, that's that's a t- uh, ADAT recorder. What's that? Oh, that's an Elise's Reverb. What's that? That's the, you know, the console. 
That's the mixing board. Well, what what are those? What's that? Do? That's Bill. He's uh, yeah. one of our engineers. Yeah. yeah. So it was this neat place being it, uh, exposed to the studio and all of the tools. And this was at like 14, 15 years old. So I couldn't even drive myself to the studio. <laughs> right. And right. so I wrote a whole, a whole album of music that uh, I've since attempted to destroy every copy of the CD that's ever been made. <laughs> because it's actually a bunch of, um, it's like 15 or 18 love songs. Right, so it's right. It's at uh, that age, I mean. exactly, exactly. Um, but that really kind of set it off for me that knowing that I wanted to write music, uh, and then I uh, attended Capitol and studied in their their composition program, and even through college, I had started to work professionally on projects to kind of help pay bills, to help uh, purchase software, to make upgrades. And uh, upon graduating, which was in 2007, I just immediately got into to business working freelance. And so, I, you know, yeah. I've been doing that uh, ever since. I can't remember a time when I didn't write music. That's where I'm at in my life now. Sure. That I really struggle to remember when I was a five-year-old or an eight-year-old. But it's like I can still remember writing music you know, as an 11 and 12 year old. And there's a cassette tape somewhere at my parents' house of my original compositions uh, from when I was 12. And they're all terrible because, you know, at 12 years old, my idea of composing is taking, at that point was taking a church song, changing some of the notes, changing uh, a couple of the chords and calling it a new song, right? right. But it was that those first compositional experiences that really kind of, ignited my passion for it i find that really interesting because you talked about how your passions were video games and music and you were involved in church how do you feel like that influenced you because i know for me in theater you know when i do musical theater and when i do sing um my voice is is kind of weird because i learned most most vocal techniques as a kid I learned from the Oak Ridge Boys because that was my dad's favorite band and I grew mm -hmm. up listening to them and going to their those are the only concerts I ever went to as a kid so I grew up listening to the Oak Ridge Boys and then I learned how to push and sing in more operatic tones from Josh Groban who my dad also liked and so I can kind of draw some lines back to going like oh weird like Josh Groban and the Oak Ridge Boys are like the influences on my voice and maybe like Tevya from Fiddler on the Roof. Uh, like that's where, and that's a weird confluence of uh, voices to put into one. So what do you think kind of led to your artistic voice? What mm -hmm. really influenced you? Yeah. Yeah. So I think I had unique voices as well from what I listened to. Um, again, this was like right around the time when CDs were coming out. And uh, for younger listeners that may not know, you would get these pamphlets in the mail for, uh, I can't think, Columbia House. Columbia House uh, albums, right? And it would be like, get 20 albums each for a penny if you join the club. And there would just be lists of CDs. And so I would just go through and pick out you know, my dad would get the ones that he would want. He would get Van Halen and Beach Boys and uh, right. Metallica and Meatloaf or whatever. And we would listen to those. But then I'd be like, hmm, Yanni, 
Okay, Scott Joplin. All right, some Kenny G. I'm going to get uh, a couple other bands I've never heard, heard from. And then my brother would get, you know, he would get 80s music and pick out some weird German heavy metal stuff and some Norwegian, you know, so I, I was just, it was everywhere. But I would often listen to Yanni. I listened to a lot of Scott Joplin because I just really loved Scott Joplin's music. And I listened to a ton of Japanese game composers just by yeah. the proxy of playing, really probably playing 20 to 30 hours of video games a week as a kid. You know, you just listen to that. And I would record it on a tape recorder and I would play that. Yeah. Um, and then naturally, as soon as I could start playing piano, uh, I was enlisted by my mom, who was a uh, cantor, right? So she was a, a singing leader in the Catholic Church. I was enlisted by her to be an accompanist. So right. immediately, right away, it 14 to 15 years old, I was already playing for masses, which is something that I've continually done uh, since that age. And well, I, think well, I mean, that, at that age, too, you had already had your first album come out. I mean, you were kind of a big deal. Oh, I know. I, I think I sold like 30 copies of that album. Hey, that's not bad. Which is actually copies. more physical copies of an album than what I sell now since everything's digital. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. Uh, so what you're saying is when your mom asked if you wanted to take piano lessons, that wasn't because you liked music. It was because she needed an accompanist to church. Yeah. No, when I took piano lessons, I was genuinely excited. I really loved it. And then right. when my mom asked me to play, I'd be like, ah, I, yeah, okay. And she's like, we're paying for these lessons. I'm like, okay. Like, yep, you got it. <laughs> you got it. But I think that that was a good, that was a good experience because it's literally like, you know, I'm not, I'm not a band in a club. I'm not Yanni, even though right. the mustache is trying to be like Yanni. I'm not Yanni. It's close to it, honestly. When you first popped on, I was like, wait a minute, is that... He's shaved could now. Be. He's shaved now. He has no mustache. So I think it's my responsibility to become Shawnee and step up <laughs> <laughs> in his position. Anyways, I, not to get sidetracked, but it, it was like doing a performance every week, right? Because there's expectations of certain musicianship, of professionalism, that it's like when you think about when you think about it, it's like doing that, you know, thirty to fifty times a year you know, for 20 years now, it's like, they're not, it's not a traditional show or a concert, but, um, you know, there's just those expectations. And really when you're talking about liturgical or sacred music, there's a relatively small body of music when you're talking about right. having to play four to six pieces of music or hymns every mass that after 10 years of doing that, you start to say, okay, I have played this song probably more times than the guy that wrote it. Like I'm going to start, <laughs> I'm going to start experimenting with what they did and I'm going to be more different. I'm going to expand on what they've done. I'm going to change this piece. And so I think that helped develop a lot of my compositional voice by hearing their music, constantly playing it, finding ways to, uh, change the melodies, reharmonize them, uh, change the form of the piece, and then, you know, even doing mashups, right, where you're having two pieces to, that are different styles, you know, one's in 4-4, four, four, 
one's in 3-4, one's fast, one's slow, completely different keys, and finding ways to merge them together into a piece really keeps your brain sharp and kind of helps you focus on writing, you know, strong hooks, memorable melodies, right. because that's what a majority of uh, more modern sacred music is, is it's it's riffs, it's hooks, it's themes. Um, and so I think that that's really helped kind of develop my chops uh, when it comes to, to doing melodic theme writing. Yeah. Now, I don't know if I mentioned this to you before we started this. I have a, a playlist on Spotify, one of them, that has over 50 hours of all movie scores, video game scores, stuff like that. And then I have a second one that is my, like, VIP version of that, which is the one that I play when I really need to focus. And that one's way shorter. It's only, like, 25 hours of Ooh. film scores. Uh, I, I'm a big film score fan. And um, actually, I, I listened to, I think, 27,000 minutes of music last year or th this year or something. And they, like, over... Uh, I think two thirds of it was film score. So I, I listen to this a lot, uh, which is why I get so excited when I talk to composers and something that I, as a fan really enjoy. And I, I'm saying this cause you just kind of touched on it with sacred music, which was interesting is for example, the rogue one trailer, when that came out, they had the done, 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 uh, you know, yeah. that, that we all know. And then over top of that, they start going dun 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 da da dun dun, and they merge those two themes. And I had never heard that merged before. And I just remember the trailer and having chills just creep all over me and being like, "Oh, I love mashups." And as someone who also grew up in the church, that's something that I really, really enjoy about. Like, I really like when I can find a worship song that merges. Amazing Grace with the Church's One Foundation or something like that, where it's mm -hmm. like, oh, this is this is so cool. And I, I think it's interesting that you bring up your religious background and having grown up playing in that, because when I listened to your music, which I, I did, and I was happy to because it's very, very good, uh, I felt like in a lot of your, particularly your fantasy and your action-adventure work, which tends to be the genre that I listen to the most of film score, I could hear not I didn't hear like Amazing Grace or something, but I could pick up a religious voice within the I could I could it was almost like they were you were writing hymns for mm -hmm. this or you were writing something that I, you could play in a church and I would be like, oh, yeah, I've never heard this hymn before. This sounds cool. So I think that that's so interesting that you would talk about that background. And then I can I can as soon as you mentioned, it, I was like, OK, yep that makes sense then that checks out yeah absolutely and i think a lot of um a lot of sacred music is modern sacred music is very homophonic in the sense that it's like you get these uh you get chords and you have a melody that either f follows the chords or leads the chords and when you start to get into some of the the older kind of sacred music you start to get into more polyphony and more counterpoint which is can still be reduced down to just in some ways being homophonic. And I think that that's really part of my, my background as a performer and has formed a very large part of my, my voice as a composer is that I feel that if, 
a piece of music can't be sung, it's more difficult for people to internalize the huh. the emotions or the art the art from it. Um, you know that huh. I want all of my music to be memorable or to have an impact in some way. Uh, and so that's kind of really why I go back to church music, because it's like that's what its whole role is designed to do, is to be simple so that people can sing the melodies and the words. Uh, they can remember them as they're experiencing something in their life that um, might make them recall words from that song. Um, and that's so yeah. interesting to me, because this, this isn't a religious podcast, but uh, you and I are both religious people, and... Historically in the church, hymns were often the closest connection uh, a person could have to theology because, I mean, we're talking, you know, 600 years ago, the Bible wasn't in their language. It was pretty much just Latin. So you would go to church and they'd read some Latin and maybe you understood it. Uh, and then they would tell you what it meant. But then the hymns was like, oh, this is a familiar thing. We know what this means or we know, you know, what this is communicating. And you could pray, but those were kind of the, the two things. And of course, music, a lot of music, um, and you know this far better than I saw so Feel free to tell me if I'm wrong, but I can only imagine the vast majority of modern music ends up having roots in in the religious tradition of music. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like there is an inherent spirituality that can't be separated from mm -hmm. music. Yeah, I think I think there's there would be people that would contest that just on the basis that that saying that music is um giving too much trying to give too much credit to the the church, but I think mm, right. it has, you know, the people would say that as an institution, maybe it didn't do that much, but I would say uh, it has preserved music very well and it's held it as, as a very high art form, you know, clear back to a thousand years ago to, to St. Hildegard. And, you know, she wrote hundreds right. of, of hymns and we still have her music and she's, she's a patron saint of, of music and they've held her music in high regard uh, for you know, and Palestrina and Michaud and Dufay and all the way through Bach and yeah, the church I think has preserved music because it recognizes it as being such a high art form um, that people still enjoy today. And it's changed over the years. I mean, I think some sacred music now isn't, you know, it's not uh, it's not a fugue or it's not intense counterpoint writing. But I think it changes with the times of what people can relate to. And I think having preserving that stuff from the past that's so beautiful while still welcoming and acknowledging new music uh, yeah. is great. You know, I think it's take the old, take the new, make something different. Uh, and it's a place where, you know, I think musicians and composers still continue to experiment with different kinds of composing and it, it's not film and it's not games, but it's, it's different. And I think that, um, religion in general, regardless of the religion is going to continue to pursue the highest form of art, be it visual or auditory and will continue to preserve it the best that they can. So I think it's, um, it's interesting in, 
in that regards. Well, it's interesting that you talk about preserving because, you know, you've already talked about documentaries, um, but documentaries and, and film uh, is ultimately preserving a moment of existence, whether it's a fantasy film and you've made a whole world and that, that you're preserving some truth that you were trying to make through that, or it's a documentary that's actually cataloging and documenting actual real events that are preserving those things. And then you're writing score for it. So how does it feel then that you are, not to put too much pressure on you and your life, uh, but... <laughs> You know, as someone who works in film, you know, theater is different. Theater has been around for um, since history began, but film hasn't. I mean, it's it's pretty young uh, Mm -hmm. in the the grand scale of the world. But music goes back as far as and probably further than theater does. Uh, So as soon as somebody made music, there was somebody that was ready to dance and act and pretend. Right. (laughs) Right. And that was before language, you know, that mm-hmm. it had to be. Uh, and and I guess what I'm trying to say is being a part of that tradition as well as the new tradition of film, how does it, I mean, I guess what I'm trying to ask is, is there an element of like, how does it feel to know that you are kind of following in, for example, St. Hildegard's footsteps and like following up on this rich tradition and tapestry and history of this and yes in a new medium but one Mm -hmm. that has changed the world forever and that your art will be preserved and able to be seen for generations and generations and that you're a part of this you know literally a history that goes longer than history Mm -hmm. oh it's it feels great and you know it, it i love it and I think that, um, you know, the game industry is, is awesome. I love video games. I will continue to score video games until I can no longer move my fingers or use my ears. And even the <laughs> same even the same thing with film. Um, and a lot of those, the games I work on and a lot of the films I work on in particular tend to, some of them do very well. People really appreciate them. I still have people that will reach out you know, years after a project's done about the positive impact that the music's had or that the, the mm-hmm. game or the, the film has had on them. But I do a lot of documentaries and I think that that's a lot, it's a lot different with documentaries because you're trying to impact some kind of a, a change or tell a story uh, that tends to last a lot longer, resonate with people in a completely different way. Um, right. And so, you know, I think documentaries especially is, you know, I love to do documentaries because it it tries to focus on a specific thing, talk about a specific issue, uh, highlight a a particular story. And then the music is really there to help aid people through that that learning process or through that emotional uh, Mm. experiencing of that story. Um, And so... Some of it is a very high artistry level with documentaries, but some of it isn't, right? Some of the music is just functional for what it needs to be. And I think that the transition from doing games to scoring documentaries was was a very natural transition because games, a lot of game composing is doing just that. Using music or using audio or sound to kind of... uh, to enhance the emotional 
uh, kind of experience of what's going on in the game at that point, uh, be it through having some kind of strong thematic elements or through having some kind of uh, strong emotional textures or you're trying to get a response of emotion from the player usually. And I think the documentaries are the same way. In uh, documentaries are, are a lot more timeless, you know, than, than yeah. some other projects. I mean, I, of course, you know, if you score a star Wars, I'd like to think that people uh, 200 <laughs> years last. from now are still going to remember that film. Uh, some of the, the games and films I work on, I hope people will remember them. But the yeah. reality is, is likely many of them are going to get sequels. Uh, many of them will get new versions. Many of them will re be replaced by successors that are far superior. Um, right. But documentaries, you know, I'm scoring one now that it's the message that it has in it is so strong. It's it, it's going to resonate the same way with people uh, 20 years from now, 50 years from now. You know, and the music may never be remembered as being the, the the highlight of that documentary, but that's not the point. Right. You're serving the story that is is there. Do you feel like there's more pressure? And I ask this because I don't really do – I don't do much with documentaries and I don't watch them as much as I should because I really like them. I just don't watch them as much as I should. They're heavy. Uh, I think it's a big responsibility sometimes to watch a documentary yeah. because it requires – attention and it requires uh emotional strengths not the right way but you can sit down an on emotional a couch. investment exactly there you go it requires some kind of an investment that i think is not always easy to give during stressful times or during yeah when you're not feeling a hundred percent sometimes it's hard to watch a documentary that talks about you know x y or z right right so how does your approach differ then when you're approaching, say, a documentary versus – let's say I come to you and I go, I've got this um, drama about a guy who gets diagnosed with cancer at the same time his dog mm -hmm. is diagnosed with cancer in the journey that they go on together. It's a – you know, and <laughs> somehow I got funding for that. Uh, and so I've got this movie and I'm bringing it to you. Versus if I were to come to you and go, I've got a documentary about a guy who was diagnosed with cancer and his dog, which would actually probably be a better documentary than a movie. But anyway, mm -hmm. how would your approach differ between those two right. um, mediums? Yeah, so th that's a, this is a good question. Um, and I think, you know, people will disagree with me. And this isn't always my approach, but this is at least my thought process is that games, documentaries, and UI, UX audio, which is another area I do a lot of work in. Mm -hmm. uh, so like designing uh, notification sounds, alarms, alerts for hardware devices, be it something... So you're saying that all the people that hate their alarms should probably call yes. you. Yeah. I think I have... Uh, I think the default alarm on the Pixel phones are, is still mine. The alarm. Oh, for that's it. cool. And it's actually a more relaxing one because, it, you know. You say. I say. <laughs> <laughs> Compared to the traditional ones that just ring your ears off. Uh, right. I think it's a little more subtle. But anyways, I, so, some of those approaches, again, for uh, 
documentaries, games, UX, UI audio, uh, slot machines, because I, I work on slot machines. I think that those are designed to solicit an emotional response from the consumer, right? So when I'm mm -hmm. doing a documentary, my goal is to make them feel something with the music, to make them feel, to have sympathy, to have empathy. And I don't mean that in like, you need to feel sorry or you need to feel bad, but that person needs to become part of what they're consuming. Whereas with the yeah. film, you're telling a story and those people uh, need to be able to relate to it but I'm telling the emotions of what's happening in the story. And maybe that mm -hmm. is, maybe that means that I want the, the viewer, the consumer to also feel that story. Maybe I want them to feel fear. Sure. But at the end of the day, you know, if it's a Star Wars film and I, I need something heroic for the character, that's really what's going to serve the score and serve the film best. But if I'm working on a documentary and we need somebody to feel something my music needs to solicit that response, right? So I'm really, I'm scoring music for the documentary, but my approach is if you cannot make the viewer feel something, anything with the music, then it's not going to serve the purpose of the documentary best. Yeah. And I think maybe the average viewer doesn't understand and I, I I hope that doesn't come across as patronizing because the goal is for them to not think about it. so so many roles in film the goal is to not be noticed like a really good sound mixer and sound designer will never be noticed uh, mm. a really good grip or gaff will never be noticed because if you notice the lights if you notice the sound design as a general rule something went wrong uh, and I feel like in some ways composers are the same because if you're not really listening for the music or if you're not someone that adores it to the extent that I do, you probably just want it to fit in with what you're watching or what mm -hmm. you're experiencing. But I, I also think people don't understand how different 2001 A Space Odyssey is without that opening piece or how different the uh, what I think are exceptional films, the Chronicles of Narnia films that were made the live action ones in the late 2000s early 2010s whenever that was without harry gregson williams gorgeous soaring score or harry potter without mm -hmm. you know that magical score they don't understand just how important score is to understanding story yeah and it it is and i think uh, uh good music there's no shortage of good music Right or great composers, you know. I'm I'm certainly not a uh, an amazing composer. I'm not a great composer, but I think well, what, some might push back on that. But sure. But I think I think what can set composers apart is knowing what to do and when, and how far to push it, and knowing mm -hmm. kind of that. And in the, in the case of documentaries, knowing when you can put because there's an ebb and a flow. Knowing when you can push certain things, knowing how to do it to kind of solicit those responses. And when you're doing a user experience, again, UX and UI audio, it's the same way. Knowing how loud to make that sound, knowing uh, what keys or what relationships between uh, colors and tones is going to get the best result for the experience, right? So it's all, right. it's about listening and experiencing and 
it's not so much about me pushing my art as much as right. what it's about me encouraging people to to relate to the music to ex you know to experience it mm -hmm. a different way than maybe what they normally would yeah now I i've hired you to work on my dog man cancer drama and uh things are going great and we have our scoring session so we're sitting down and we're watching the film and uh it's going very very well the dog's name is benji we're enjoying it and uh there's a particular scene and I pause it and I go, now I really want score here. And, um, if it's me, knowing me, I'd say I really want a cello somehow involved. Uh, cause I, I'm, I happen to be a big cello fan. So I go, I really want a cello involved. I also, uh, would really like the distant echo of a pan flute and, um, <laughs> maybe we'll throw a timpani in somewhere as well, but I want it to be a light and fluffy timpani. Uh, so <laughs> we're working on this scene and you're watching it, and you know that I've asked for these ridiculous demands. And what are you watching for? Are you watching for particular camera movements or moments from the actor where you can see that maybe he's, he hesitated on a particular beat? Or is it that the dog's about to cry because Benji's a wonderful actor? And what what are you watching for to motivate a certain instrument or a certain moment to find that truth? Mm-hmm. Um, usually it's with, it's with relationships and trans, uh, transitions in the music, right? Mm -hmm. Cause it's, it's easy to say, put a theme here, put a theme here, like, but it's the connection of all of those ideas. It's the flow for me of all of that material that I really think can, uh, solicit those that the viewer being able to relate to what they're seeing and hearing is that the, the music, just as the dialogue or the conversation or the cameras move, the music needs to move its own way. And, you know, I, again, this is just my approach, but I think there's so many times where they'll say, well, we need to have a change in the music here, and it needs to be here, it needs to be right here and right here and right here. And my approach is to say, well, if you need a change here, we need to start making transitional material that leads up to that point. You know, the music needs to move and breathe on its own the same way that, a again, the camera would move, that an actor will have right. their own uh, personality and how they're acting. And so I, I like to think of the music as being connected to everything that you're seeing and hearing, but it also needs to breathe on its own. And really, the way that happens is through uh, creative transitions, you know, from idea to idea in the music, from instrument to a different instrument, from one theme to the next, through one texture to the next, needs to be this constant intelligent form of, of transitioning and motion um, while still kind of preserving what's needed in the scene. So that, I mean, usually I'm looking for those transition points um, or where to start those transition points and kind of the bigger key areas of where we need something thematic or some kind of a tonal change. And then I kind of work backwards. So I work forwards and then I, I work backwards on the same thing. Right. Huh. Well, uh, as much as I would be overjoyed to continue talking with you, I think I have to go write a movie about something about a guy and his dog and cancer. And I also have to find a dog named Benji that happens to be a good actor. So, uh, CG. and also I'm just, 
I'm feeling intimidated by your mustache, if I'm being honest. I'm just feeling very insecure at this point. I can shave it. I'll do it. Don't. Don't ever shave it. Don't ever change. Uh, this has been absolutely delightful. It has been a pleasure and a treasure to talk with you. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for being here. I look forward to seeing all of the wonderful adventures ahead of you, both in music and with your lovely family. Congrats again on that. Remind me of the the newborn's name. Bibiana. Oh, that's a one. That's a lovely name. Lots of bees. So she just goes by, (laughs) she goes by Bibby. Which I joke is the female version of Bobby, apparently. Hey, that works. That works. (laughs) Bibby, that's a fun nickname. I like that. I like that. Well, thank you so much for coming on here. It has been really, really great to chat with you. Thank you. And we'll be back soon with another episode of the podcast. Thank you for listening.